Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Once upon a time, in a magical land called Cincinnati, Ohio, I was really bored in math class. That's how I usually start this story. It's one I've had to tell a lot. Apparently, it's not every day a 15-year-old theater nerd from every writer's favorite punching bag of a state up and becomes a showrunner. Which, if you put it that way, is pretty cool and impressive. But, uh, here's the thing. There's a reason Hollywood doesn't just let teenagers be producers. My name is Newt Shuttlecotty. I'm 20 years old, and I've been making podcasts since before my brain was fully developed, which should tell you a lot right there. In addition to three audio dramas under my belt, I work as a freelance sound designer, writer, and voice actor, as well as the current senior producer at Better Lemon Creative Audio and director of marketing at Fable and Folly. My shows have won awards, been selections at festivals, and produced so much cool fan art, I can hardly believe it. How did I get here? <laughs> I did so much stupid shit. oh my god. When you start out as young as I did, you don't have a ton of experience or common sense, really, to draw from. There's plenty I wish I had known or done differently or even just not done at all. And since the wave of new creators in the wake of 2020 and 2021 suddenly giving a lot of high schoolers and college students some extra time on their hands, I've seen a bunch of creators within the age range I was ask those same questions and make those same mistakes. So here I am, not so much as healing my inner child as enthusiastically advising them, because I have seen, done, and licked stupid, and I want to make sure you don't have to to get that same information. In this series, I'll take you through everything from building your production team, to creating a show and personal brand, to figuring out a work-life balance when your life consists of things like prom and homework and getting your license. This is Mini Marconi's, how to be a fiction podcaster while still being a kid. The very first thing you should ask before doing a single ounce of planning is this. Is my story right for audio drama? That can look different for every production. Maybe you do have the sound design budget and capacity for a sprawling space opera with tons of firefights and action set pieces. Or maybe you need to look at your resources and skill level and pair it back to something more low-key. A simple story told well and with polish is infinitely better than a high-concept mess. That's also something you should be asking when adapting an existing IP. When retelling a story through the lens of a different medium, you should always ask how this new format either improves on the existing work or reveals something new about its content that its original form could not. Maybe it would be cool to turn the Jungle Book into an audio drama, but why that story in this medium? 
If nothing is improved or revealed, you might just be a part of Hollywood's current reboot fever problem. Once that hesitation is passed, you may be faced with a different, more difficult one, imposter syndrome. Seeing the age, experience, and skill set of your peers, it's easy to feel intimidated. There isn't really any precedent for what podcasting allows you to do. Anyone at any age can put on the hat of a showrunner and have a go at a position that, in the film and television industry, usually takes years of hard work and networking to achieve. But it also makes that position more accessible than ever. It's harder to stand out from the crowd, but that crowd is full of voices unsilenced by nepotism, studio biases, and the financial ability to grind away for years with no guarantee of the position. What's important to understand is that you're going to make mistakes. That's a fact of starting any creative endeavor. Stuff I wrote when I thought getting a B in algebra was the end of the world is a permanent part of my professional portfolio. The key is to let go of the idea that beginner's mistakes are indicative of your ability to grow and improve. We all have to start somewhere. And starting is how you go from this... How long does it even take to find a book anyway? Who knows? Maybe they've already found it and are having a rapturous love affair in a hall closet. To this... Oops! What did I hit? Sophie, don't get out of your car! What are you doing? It's alright, honey. Mike's in the car. Oh, thank God. Did I hit someone? Like, a person? Oh my god, my Yale application isn't done processing! Now that you've gotten over every storyteller's biggest hurdle, it's time to bring the pieces of that story together. Whether it's horror, fantasy, sci-fi, or comedy, you need to ensure your piece is unique and engaging. And one of the best ways to do that is by having a diverse cast. We all know that having characters with different life experiences and perspectives is key to creating a group dynamic people will get invested in, and the wider you cast your net, the more your audience can relate to them. Representation matters, but it also matters how you go about implementing it. Jacqueline Cho is a fellow showrunner and longtime friend who started making audio fiction at around the same time I did. We sat down to talk about mindful representation, avoiding casting call mishaps, and how, for white creators like myself, the road to an uncomfortable production environment is sometimes paved with good intentions. My name is Jacqueline Cho, and I show run a gas station out of time, and I have recently started sensitivity reading. Like most people our age, actually, my first audio drama was uh, Welcome to Night Vale. So uh, I think I first started listening maybe, I want to say, in 2018. And from there, I was also regrettably into Lamez at the time. So um, I really started um, digging into the character dynamics from there, and then I realized that I wanted to tell my own story, and I figured out that audio drama would be the best way to do it. So one of the biggest things that you need to start with when creating mindful and authentic representation is understanding how to create a character that is representation of marginalized groups, but is not a box to be checked. I guess it also depends on how you start writing your audio drama. When it came to writing some of my own shows, I definitely wrote from my own experience. So that both consciously and subconsciously ended up being explicitly Asian versus both the medium, not just audio drama, but most other non-visual mediums and including visual mediums. It feels like racialized rep is more of something that once you've seen one of, it's easier to drop off, especially when it comes to creating non-stereotypical characters. Because as much as we would like to try and avoid stereotypes, avoiding these stereotypes end up making these characters feel more two-dimensional rather than wholly recognized and complicated characters. 
So how would you say that creators can find the balance between avoiding stereotypes, but also incorporating aspects of a character's culture and the way that they would grow up into how they write that character? I would say the biggest thing is to consult marginalized creators, not even just creators, like sensitivity readers, but also like just people who are marginalized. And then on top of that all, like do your research, know your history. It's stuff like maybe calling an Asian character a rat or implying like anything from like yellow peril rhetoric, which is kind of deeply ingrained in essentially American culture that you need to re-examine those biases and you need to look into historical examples in order to make sure that you're not continually perpetuating those stereotypes. Right, right. Because even just outside of racialized representation, marginalized people can tell when a character was just created to sort of for lack of a better term, play representation bingo and just try to cram as many identities into a character as possible for points instead of, you know, taking the time and the effort to mindfully incorporate these identities into who this character is. Yeah, for sure. And I think that comes into play, especially with um, mindful representation. And making sure that you have a voice actor who is really passionate about the character and whom you can work with to incorporate these details is also a really great idea. Yeah, for sure. The team environment that you're working with, especially um, as a person of color, really plays into that. Because uh, while it shouldn't be your actor's job to sensitivity read for you, your actor can definitely like give you quick heads up or pointers like, hey, this is kind of uncomfortable. It kind of is reminiscent of some offensive tropes or unflattering stereotypes. I remember my very first audio drama, I ended up subconsciously writing the character as Korean, and since I was working with a Korean voice actor, she um, was really, really great about like helping me integrate some other language aspects because I'm not nearly as well-versed in Korean as I would like to, as I would like to admit. And you're doing a lot of that with a gas station out of time, right? My co-writer is Filipino, our main character is Filipino, so we're definitely seeing how we can integrate both aspects of Korean and Filipino culture, and that's also different experiences of Asian diaspora especially. So it's been really cool to like work with the voice actors, and they've been so open about like implementing and willing to implement parts of their culture. And casting calls can be a bit of a bugbear where we'll see characters who were so clearly created to just, again, get quote unquote diversity points instead of thinking, okay, well, with the reach that I have, am I going to be able to get this casting call in front of an actor who can fulfill all these marginalized identities and take on the emotional labor of playing this character And I know that a lot of casting calls have found themselves in a tight spot where they weren't able to find an actor to portray that character and they had to walk a lot of aspects of that character back, which is always really awkward. I guess it it honestly does come down to, I want to say, again, mindful representation. When it comes to at least like Asian characters, I remember it was really easy to write for one of the characters in a gas station out of time because I knew the voice actress, um, I knew that she was going to be Korean, and I can write from that experience. And uh, for my co-writer, it was pretty easy to write from a Filipino perspective, and we got really, really lucky that a lot of very talented Filipino voice actors were willing and able to audition. But I think when it comes to when you don't have that goodwill, when you don't have that good luck, you need to be aware of a, how it's going to look, and B, how you are presenting yourself to communities of color. Like, you can't be expected to be coddled because a lot of actors of color I know have been burned by white creators who were either unable or unwilling to take into account their concerns. Yeah. I know that this sometimes comes up a lot with what I can speak to with, you know, disabled characters. 
it's really, really easy to tell when writers have just written a character with their disability being a complete afterthought or something that an actor auditioning should not have to self-identify to, you know, be able to portray this character. I mean, at the end of the day, characters of color should be portrayed by actors of color. Trans characters need to be portrayed by trans actors. But it gets a little bit muddier with stuff like, you know, disability and sexuality especially. I have seen casting calls that are like, you must be, say, a lesbian to audition for this lesbian character. And number one, that is illegal. Like, that is flat out illegal. You cannot force someone to disclose their sexuality um, in a workplace environment, which this is. And number two, that is entirely unfair to put actors on the spot where you feel like they owe you that information. At the end of the day, you need to make sure that your voice actors are comfortable being the face of this experience before you go forcing them to disclose any information that is not absolutely necessary to play the character. Yeah, and I will say in terms of sexuality, because I, I can speak a little bit to that as well, you are also limiting those roles to people who are able and have the privilege to come out. And like more often than not, that is impossible for a lot of people. And something that you also have to consider, I think, is are people who are only listening to the show, not reading the casting call, not going and searching you out on social media, not going on your website to see the character portraits, are these people going to recognize this representation? Because if you have a character who, say, is Black, and the only place that people can learn that this character is Black is through reading the casting call or checking you out on social media or going on your website, if you don't incorporate that into the character's experience and who they are, as is in real life, whatsoever, you are not doing a good job because most of your audience is not going to do that hunting and pecking. I think it's pretty safe to say that if you're going to tote yourself or market yourself as a good representation of, um, to be fair, anything, but especially when it comes to racialized characters and audio drama, you have completely failed <laughs> if um, you think that just randomly mentioning it once or... The fact that your listeners aren't able to detect that, to be fair, maybe that is symbolic of your listeners' underlying biases as well. But if you have given no other indication that your character is a racialized person or a character of color, you have failed in terms of creating at least a somewhat meaningful um, representation of a person of color in your audio drama. And I think it's also important to note that making this representation visible should not be solely done and, in fact, majority done by having that character face discrimination. If the only way that we know your character is Black is because they experience, you know, moments of racism in your show, then, number one, that is deeply, deeply hurtful. And number two, that's cheating. Especially if you are a white creator, I would be extremely wary of making your characters known only by how they are interacting with other characters. So with all of that in mind, how would you say there can be a balance between having open casting where you allow any actor of any race or ethnicity to audition for a character and then build in the experiences of the actor you chose versus putting out a casting call for a character of this specific identity um, and then just hoping that an actor who fulfills that identity will audition versus, again, writing a character specifically with an actor in mind. 
I will say those are all very different experiences. And I will say that I've, uh, luckily enough, we actually had all three of those experiences when it came to a gas station at a time. Specifically to the last one, it was, again, extremely easy. And I got really fortunate because, again, Soren's a great voice actor. In response to the idea of writing a racialized character in mind, that also came down to having a really talented co-writer who happens to be Filipino, uh, Ray Vargas. But I think it, the problem when it comes down to writing for a character in mind and not having a voice actor and kind of just like hoping that you roll the dice uh, and get really lucky and happen to have someone who auditioned versus incorporating a cultural roots, it does come down to intention. And while intention doesn't exactly like absolve you of all of your faults, on the off chance that you happen to get an actor of color to audition for these uh, open casting roles, then you can start talking to your actor if they're able and willing to incorporate some of those cultural roots within, uh, within your show. So being able to work with the voice actor, being able to work with um, the co-writer, it's been a very humbling, but it's been a really cool experience because it's, at the end of the day, you're learning. It's cool. <laughs> yeah. And I think that this should be the thing that white writers, you know, aspire to, because nobody is saying that if you're white, you shouldn't have characters of color in your shows, is that you have to understand that you're going to make mistakes and you need to ensure that you have people like sensitivity readers and like voice actors to an extent there to check you if and when you do make those mistakes. You need to then be open to being told that you're wrong and making those changes and having those hard conversations. And you need to understand that you are obligated to put this extra effort in because we cannot just have all white stories and all white casts. Yeah, for sure. Like at the end of the day, it's, it is a learning experience. And well, of course, it's really nice to have someone who is nicely telling you, hey, you're wrong. And because they are trying to save you a world of hurt. But sensitivity readers don't owe you that. You are hiring them to tell you what, that you're wrong. Yeah, and also your voice actors, again, shouldn't have to be your sensitivity readers. The extra effort is lovely. It's nice. Eternally grateful. Shouldn't be expected. Definitely isn't part of their job description. So how would you say that the best way for first-time creators to go about finding a sensitivity reader, especially for maybe less represented identities? If I'm being honest, sensitivity reading in audio drama is still extremely new. I can maybe name about two, three people at the top of my head. And of course, everyone needs to be aware that sensitivity readers are only speaking from their experience. And even if you do get a sensitivity reader, that does not absolve your show of any criticism that you may face later down the line. If you can pay them. <laughs> if you can pay them, absolutely pay them. Especially because it's not necessarily just a matter of like a really cut and dry job. You are asking someone to essentially explain their experience within a framework of oppression. And that is very difficult to do with compensation, <laughs> let alone without. So to wrap all this up, even just unrelated to what we just discussed, what would be your biggest piece of advice for creators who are our age right now, who are the age that we were when we got started podcasting, who want to go and make the best show that they can? Have an outline. Have an outline. Have an idea of where you want to go. Don't be afraid to ask for opinions. And on top of it all, don't be afraid to ask for help. I don't think anyone would be as far as they are in this industry without friends. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. 
That's shopify.com slash special offer. Jack's right. It's not just about the characters and the story you write that makes a good show, but the people making it. No showrunner is an island, and even if you're like me and decide to fulfill as many production roles as you semi-realistically can, building a strong team of voice actors and crew members will set you up for success. If you're just starting out, you'll likely be most comfortable working with your friends. There's nothing inherently wrong with this. My Where the Stars Fell co-writer Lucy Brown and I were friends for years before she joined the writer's room for season two. Making art with the people you love is a long-held tradition, and if you're having fun doing it, your audience will likely be able to sense that joy. However, boundaries absolutely have to be put in place when producing a project. If you're too afraid of damaging a relationship to honestly give notes on a script or tell a voice actor what they need to tweak in their performance, you're going to make a bad product. The ability to put personal feelings and relationships aside when the production hats are put on is essential to ensuring everyone does the best work they can. If you don't think you and your friends can do that, you may be better off building a team that can keep each other at an arm's length. One way to do this is via checks and balances. I shouldn't have to say this, but writers, you need an editor, and you need one who isn't afraid to be honest. A creator afraid of criticism is one who will never grow, and a good editor will tell you what you're doing right, but they'll also tear a bad script apart so you can make a good one from the scraps. I also find it helpful to keep overly personal conversations out of production spaces. My show discords have a general channel for chit-chat and team bonding, but any venting or conversations you wouldn't have in public with a PA broadcast system microphone in your hand need to be taken somewhere else. It's tempting to try and coax your team into becoming a big, happy family, especially if you've grown up seeing behind-the-scenes photos and content from your favorite movies and shows. But even those casts have boundaries. When things get messy, they affect the show, so the best solution is to avoid touching that mess at all. Along those lines, if you're bringing in people you're not familiar with, such as voice actors from a casting call, a hired sound designer, or anyone you're not close with outside of the show, respect that they may see this as a job and nothing more. They are not obligated, even if you're paying them, to be involved in social aspects, extraneous content, or anything outside their job description. Sometimes I get really passionate about the shows I'm hired to work on and make playlists, chat about the characters, and seek out what fans are saying. Sometimes I'm just there to make something well, get paid, and put food on the table. Both are perfectly valid mindsets, and you can't expect the former from everyone you work with. You do need to hold people accountable to their position, though. I've seen way too many shows come out guns a-blazing, then become overwhelmed internally and fade into a perpetual hiatus. Whether that's from scheduling, dropouts, or technical issues, here are my top three tips for ensuring people do what they're supposed to and get it to the people who need it. Number one, have clear deadlines. A great way for people to completely forget they owe you lines or a script is to not have a date in place when you need them delivered by. Keep a calendar of all the due dates on your production timeline and make sure everyone on your team has access to it. A week out from all those due dates, put a reminder in the team communications hub so any procrastinators can get in gear. By making sure deadlines are given with plenty of notice and are easy to check, you can leave no room for excuses like, I forgot, or I didn't know that was due. Show production is a relay, and delays in one part of the chain mean a hassle for everyone else on it. Number two, require reasonable but timely communication. In today's world of social media overwhelm, we all dread checking our emails. Let's keep it real. 
Still, when you join a production team, you are committing to being available for that project. Nobody wants to work with someone who takes a month to reply to a message, especially when trying to schedule things like recording and table reads. You shouldn't be expected to be available 24-7, but it's understood that when you offer yourself to a team, you are promising to communicate with them in a timely manner. If everyone has to wait around for one person to look at their email before being able to go forward with production, that's disrespecting their hard work and, most importantly, their time. Understand that when you want to be a part of the entertainment industry, you have to follow the rules, and one of them is being available. Number three, use the writer trick. The band Van Halen had a clause in their tour writer, which is a document outlining the needs of a band when playing at a venue, that required a bowl of M&Ms with no brown ones. Sounds silly, until you remember that Van Halen was one of the biggest, most complex touring acts of the time, with a myriad of equipment that needed to be prepared for and handled carefully. That little bowl of M&Ms was a litmus test to see if the venue manager had actually read the entire document and was fully prepared to handle things far more important than candy. It's a trick that many creators, including myself, use in casting calls to see if auditionees have read the entire document. If I ask you to slate at the beginning of your audition or say your lines in a certain format, I'm looking to see if you'll read over an entire list of instructions and correctly follow them. Forgetting that slate doesn't just tell me you ignored the important bits and hit record, it tells me I can't trust you not to ignore essential asks in the production process down the line. By using the writer trick, you'll weed out potential problem team members and save yourself a lot of headaches. Speaking of headaches, when you're a sound designer in indie audio drama, you get a lot of them. If you sat me down and asked me to describe all of the outright unusable recordings I've received from people who don't understand how to adjust their gain, or what part of the mic to talk into, or that noise removal is not just a magic button I can press and get rid of your washing machine in the background, we'd be here all day. So instead of griping about it, here are some quick do's and don'ts on how to get the best audio from your actors. Do. Get to know your microphone. Find out how it should be set up to speak into, where to place your pop filter, how to adjust the gain, and what those gain settings should be depending on how loud you're speaking. There's no shame in pausing recording to turn your gain up or down to avoid peaking or garbled audio. Your sound editor will thank you, and we can cut the pause and post. Don't. Send your audio without giving it a listen. It's not your sound editor's job to go through a recording realize it's unusable because of easily fixable mistakes, and request retakes. It slows down the production process, inconveniences your showrunner too, and is generally just considered a dick move. Do. Treat your space. Seriously, treat it. Recording in a small room or putting a blanket over your head is not enough. You should cover all hard, flat surfaces with soft, textured material to absorb sound, including something overhead. This doesn't have to be expensive, either. You can use clothes hanging around you in a closet, towels, blankets, pillows, anything to create a soundproof cave. Don't. Settle for background noise. A little room tone is normal, there's no such thing as pure silence these days, but things like traffic, household machinery, or loud pipes are going to render your recording unusable. A good rule of thumb is, the easier your audio is to clean up and polish, the more your sound designer will like you and the better you'll sound. We're like the accompanists of podcasting. Take us for granted, and we will ensure you don't get the gig. Those are some basics to start, and applicable to everyone on the production team. Sound design itself is a whole different process, 
which we'll get into in our next episode. For now, I'll leave you with an actionable exercise to put today's lessons in practice. Create a mock production schedule on a piece of paper. No computers or phones, just write it all out. Every step you can think of for taking your show from concept to posting. What roles go into each step? What parts of the process look the most difficult? Writing this out by hand will force you to slow down and think about the whole process. Give that a try, and I'll see you next week. If you like what you heard, sound off. Drop me a line at minimarconis.com or at newtshot, that's N-E-W-T-S-C-H-O-T-T, on Twitter. You can also leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Podchaser, or Spotify. Thanks for listening. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.